For centuries, across all space and time, the church has gathered on Resurrection Sunday morning and they have proclaimed, he is risen. And the church responds, he is risen indeed. I'll tell you, sitting in this room, not hearing that refrain repeated back to me gives me a longing. It gives me a sense of not missing out, but of what must one day be, the gathering again together of God's people in one location. We're gonna talk about in a moment someone else who had that same longing. But because it's Easter, I wanna talk about that wonderful, great narrative that takes place, as Matt's already mentioned, in a garden. Good Friday, just a couple days ago, we gathered together and we walked through the gospel of Mark and Mark's telling of the arrest and the execution of Jesus. Well, this morning we wanna have a different angle of approach, if you will. We wanna look at the gospel of John. Very briefly, I'm gonna look at John chapter 20, just these first 10 verses. John chapter 20, verses one through 10. I'm gonna walk through these, read these, and I want you to to place yourself, if you will, in that context. I want you to, to smell the grass. I want you to experience what John was wanting you to experience. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, that's really significant, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. If you're making up this story, you would never start this way. You would never have a female as an eyewitness. In all of the great judiciary systems of antiquity, no offense, ladies, a woman was not permissible as a witness because, and I quote, they're all hysterical. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that was the official reasoning from antiquity. And yet, the first person we have to come to the open tomb is this woman. And not just a woman, a woman with a checkered past. No, she was not promiscuous. She was not a prostitute. That has been since resolved and clarified and corrected. No, but she certainly had a spiritually dark past. This woman who had been gripped by multiple demonic presences, freed by Jesus, who follows him around, who somehow contributes financially to his ministry, she's the first one to show up at the tomb. She doesn't understand what's happening. Verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. We know that John's referring to himself here. It's astonishing that Peter and John aren't at the tomb. As many times as Jesus proclaimed and predicted his resurrection, his rising again from the dead, you would think they would be there, that they would understand this, but they did not get it. And candidly, neither does Mary Magdalene. Look what she says. Verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She does not understand the enormity and the eternality of what has taken place. Verse three, so Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running. Well, here's the deal. Peter... We're pretty sure he was a redhead, and so he's not very nimble, not very quick. John is also more than likely the youngest of all of the disciples, and so he sprints out ahead, and he gets to the tomb first. They were both going toward the tomb. They were both running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Incidentally, important to point out here that it's John who's writing this gospel, and he wants to make sure that we understand that he actually got there first for all posterity. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John gets there first. He stops. He waits. He looks in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came, sucking the wind, I'm sure, following him and went into the tomb. He doesn't break stride. He barrels right past John directly into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. He was not snatched away. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And he deliberately took the time to take off his head garment and to fold it up and to place it separately, which is a great callback to a Jewish tradition at Passover. I'll be right back. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, in case you had forgotten that part, John got there first, also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They're only now beginning to understand the enormity of the resurrection. The fact is that because of this moment, the fact is Jesus is alive. That's actually our big idea for the morning, that Jesus is alive. Famously, Larry King was once asked, if you could ask God one question and one question only, Larry King responded, I would want to know, is Jesus really alive? Because that would change everything. Now, because Jesus is alive, there are some things that immediately influence and impact who we are and what we do as a church. Because of this, for the very first time, the church began to meet on the first day of the week. Every other religion ever, including up to this day, meets on the last day. Because every other religion focuses in on what you must do. You work hard, you do your best efforts all week long, and then at the end of the week, the last day, you come to worship and you say, well, now I just need a final closing nudge or a boost to get me across the line. But Christianity was markedly different. No, it was about the work of Jesus. We're going to start our day proclaiming that he is alive. And so the church begins to meet on the first day of the week. Unlike ancient Judaism, unlike all the other world religions of our day, we start our week with that. That's very significant. And that's why we do what we do as a church, to proclaim that Jesus is alive. Secondly, these disciples took on to themselves the resurrection effect. This was this Jesus who was their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, their traveling companion, and he had died and they knew it, but now he was alive. And because he was alive, they were willing to live the rest of their lives giving the gospel, going willingly to their own horrific deaths because this Jesus was alive. They were not merely following the memory of their dead teacher. What else could they do? He was alive, which begs the question, are you following the memory of a dead rabbi or do you actually understand that Jesus is alive? Which begs the third point of the resurrection effect and the fact that Jesus is alive. These people gave the gospel in every gathering. We talked about that in our Roman series. They could not help but talk about the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God had done in Christ to redeem them to himself and us to himself and ultimately to one another. That's John's portrayal of 
the resurrection of Jesus. But it's Easter Sunday morning, and so I want us to spend a little bit more time looking in particular at another passage that I think is the most perhaps pertinent passage for Easter of any Easter I've ever had the pleasure of preaching. So I'm going to ask our friend Megan McGill if she would read for us from the book of Revelation. Megan? This is Revelation 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. This is the book of Revelation. There's just one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling. This is who he is. And when we see him again, this is what we shall see. This passage is very emotional. It's intended to be so. Remember that this is written by John. He writes the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling, literally the apocalypse. Now, I know, and on our day and age and present circumstance under a pandemic, apocalypse is probably a delicate word, but it simply means the unveiling, the, the pulling back of that which was previously shrouded. This is about Jesus. Now, a lot of confusion about the book of Revelation, but there need not be. A lot of people have written that they simply don't understand the book of Revelation. John Calvin famously wrote 65 commentaries and he did not write a 66th because he simply wrote, I do not understand what it means. But the book of Revelation is not novel. There's nothing new in the book of Revelation. It is Old Testament literature. The Old Testament prophetically predicted the coming of Christ over and over and over again. In virtually every book of the Old Testament, the coming of Christ was predicted. In fact, for every time that his first coming was prophesied, his second coming is prophesied eight times more. So the book of Revelation is merely gathering up all of the information from the Old Testament and presenting it in a very graphic, uh, image-rich sort of way. This John 
the last living of the original 12 disciples, is probably in his 90s by the time he's written this. Very good church tradition says that Emperor Domitian had him boiled alive in oil and somehow he survived, which terrified the emperor. And so the emperor had him banished in exile on the island of Patmos where there was no fresh water. And as an old man, John is in exile on Patmos and he's desperately longing to be returned to the fellowship. He's desperately longing to be with the church. He had been pastoring in Ephesus, but he's been exiled to Patmos. And as Megan just read for us, he's longing to be with the fellowship on the Lord's day. I don't know for sure that it was Easter, but I like to think that it was Easter. That he had not seen his friend, his Lord, his rabbi, his master, his teacher in over 60 years since his resurrection and ascension. 60 years this John remained faithful through all of that, longing to see Jesus. And instead, Jesus comes to him. I want to walk back through these verses very briefly and just sort of land this in terms of how it pertains to us here at Easter. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, again through verse 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Soon. Not necessarily within the next 30 minutes, but to say that it is imminent. It can happen at any moment. There's nothing else on the prophetic calendar that needs to occur the coming of Christ at second advent can happen just like that. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Apparently there was a messenger angel involved in giving John these visions. John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John actually saw everything that he said he saw. John's giving a legal testimony as a witness. And we have to remember that John's biological brother, James, remember the two sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. James has already been put to death by the sword, we're told in Acts chapter 12. And yet here, John still remains a witness, simply recounting what he experienced and what he saw. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear. That's interesting. There's a singularity of the one who reads these things and there's a plurality of those who hear. In other words, this is a prescription for how we are to do church, for who we are to be as the church. There is to be one who reads the words of scripture and there are to be those who gather in a real time sort of environment to hear the prophetic utterance of scripture. This is who we are. This is what we do. There's blessing promised for hearing the words of scripture and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. It is at hand. There's nothing else that has to happen before the second coming of Christ. John's going to give us his greeting. Verse four, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that means the Western portion of what is today modern Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. Grace to you and peace. And it's always in that order. Our world even today is desperate for peace, but it cannot come. It cannot be without the giving of grace. Something alien from the outside has to be given to us in order for us to have peace. No amount of programming, no amount of government involvement, no amount of education or economic stimulus can give us peace. That can only come through grace. From him, Jesus, who is and who was and who is to come 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We have a wonderful giving of a triune understanding of our God, from God to Jesus and the Holy Spirit represented by seven spirits. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And John says firstborn, it's because there will be millions and millions of others. That's such good news. And the rulers of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has conquered the ultimate enemy. He has done that which we could not do. He is sovereign and he loves us. This is very good news. Verse six, and he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father. This was always God's plan. Way back in Exodus 19, the nation of Israel was supposed to have been a nation of priests, but they feared and they backed away. In the New Testament, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood, the intersection of the tribes of Judah and Levi. It's you, the church, those who are in Christ. It's finally happened. All that was supposed to have happened way back, God has set it right because that's what holiness means. God moves his character of righteousness forward. The book of Revelation, again, is telling us all that the Old Testament prophesied. From the book of Romans all the way through the book of Jude, it's been all about the age of grace. Revelation, we're going to see what it looks like when he returns and sets the kingdom in place. Verse six, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. The doxology, John just bursts into praise. Behold, verse seven, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. John's giving us a very deliberate reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is given authority by the Ancient of Days. John understands that this Jesus, his friend, the one that loved him, is also the Son of Man. He is, in fact, divine. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John's point here is saying, from Zechariah chapter 12. Israel will look on the one they have pierced and they will wail, but then they will turn to him and their turning to him will bring all of the world to know that Jesus is alive. Verse eight, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Jesus This friend of John, whom John had not seen in 60 years, in John's view, calls himself the first, the last, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. He calls himself the Almighty. One of my favorite words in Revelation, the Pantocrator, he with all power. Well, John's going to continue to write about his experience with seeing the risen Lord Jesus. Again, I reiterate, John has not seen Jesus for some odd 60 years. We're going to pick up now in verse 12, and we're going to see what we call the beatific vision of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see him again, this is what we shall see, because Jesus is alive. We are to think rightly of this Jesus. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus. Perhaps it's the Christmas scene and it's cute little pink 7.2 pound baby Jesus in a manger. Or maybe you think about this victim Christ on a cross. But this is who Jesus is today. And when we see him, this is what we shall encounter. Beginning in verse 12. 
John writes, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. I love this. He touched him. No social distancing from Jesus here. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is John's vision of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus, you see, is alive. And I love the fact that Jesus, in his risen form, understands that his unmitigated glory is too much for John to stand. John falls at his feet as though dead, but Jesus touches him and gives grace. And he says, do not fear, which is the message that I want to bring to us as a church in this Easter season. Three reasons why we should not be afraid. Number one, we need not fear because death and Hades are defeated. We need not fear because death and Hades are defeated already. This is what Easter is. It is the funeral for death and Hades. That is not our destiny ever. The greatest fear mankind has ever known has been dealt with already and it is defeated. It is dead and gone. We need not fear. John is the first one to experience this comforting touch to remind us we need not fear. Even in the midst of all this fear, uncertainty, and doubt that is plaguing our world, we need not fear because death and Hades are defeated. We need not fear because Jesus is a death-proof king. He cannot die again. And we are in Christ. Oh, world leaders and celebrities, luminaries come and they go because they all die. But we serve and have and love a death-proof king. He has died and he is alive, he says, forevermore. He is literally death-proof. Nothing in existence, material or immaterial, can impact him whatsoever. We need not fear. Thirdly, we need not fear because Jesus is sovereign and he is good. If he's just sovereign but not good, we should fear tremendously. But look at the tenderness with which Jesus approaches John. He is sovereign and he is good. He loves us, John tells us earlier in chapter one. We need not fear. This Jesus who is alive, were he here, would place his hand upon you like he did the disciple that he loved, John, because he loves you. And he would say, do not fear. I am the first. I am the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. I was alive. I died, but I'm alive forevermore. I am he who is the almighty. Do not fear. I love you.